This is Positively Farming Media. Hello, my gardening friends, and welcome back to the Just Grow Something podcast. This episode is the second of two parts talking about growing for farmer's market. This week, we're digging into changes and considerations for planning, planting, and pricing the produce that you want to take to market. When I first started, I really thought it was just a matter of increasing the volume of what I grew, but it turned out to be a little bit more complicated than that. It's not hard, but the amount of space that you have to work with is going to dictate what you grow and how you grow it, and that requires planning. Then, once you get to harvest, how the heck do you decide what to charge? (laughs) We'll talk about all that today and more. Let's dig in. Hey, I'm Karen. I started gardening years ago in a small corner of my suburban backyard, then moved to a five-acre lot outside city limits and expanded that garden to half an acre. What started as a way to provide for my family turned into a love for digging in the dirt and providing for others. Slowly, my husband and I built our small homestead into a 40-acre market farm through lots of trial and error and successes and failures. Eventually, I went back to school to get my degree in horticulture, and along the way, I discovered there is power in food. So I want to share everything I've learned with as many people as possible. This podcast is all about helping you become a better gardener and a better eater. Whether you're a seasoned gardener or have never grown a thing in your life, I want to give you the knowledge you need to get the biggest and best harvest you can. So settle in, grab that garden journal, and get ready to just grow something. So we're just going to dig right into our topic this week, and we're going to start with the planning portion of growing for farmer's market. The first step is deciding how much you think you're going to need and what fruits and vegetables you want to sell. It's really tempting to just increase the volume of everything you grow and have the widest variety possible at your stand. And if you're selling as a subscription box or maybe a CSA, That might be necessary just to keep your customers happy. They're going to want that variety every week. But if you're selling at a market or from a stand at the end of your driveway, you can be a bit more picky about what you choose to sell. Your table does not need to contain every type of vegetable that can be grown in your area across each part of the season. That can very quickly get to be overwhelming. My advice is choose a handful of things that you really enjoy growing and that you think you can get a consistent harvest from. Keep in mind, this is likely going to change throughout the market season based on your climate. I'll use our area as an example. We can grow really great leafy greens and green onions and radishes and things like that in the very early spring. And at the same time, we're planting all of those things that will end up being our early summer harvests. So once we get to the early summer, late spring, early summer, we're talking about things like beets and carrots, broccoli, cauliflower, cabbage, um, the earliest of those Irish potatoes, green beans. And then we move midsummer into the, the really heavy-duty favorites like tomatoes, cucumbers, peppers, sweet corn, melons, squash, and then... As we're harvesting all of those things, we continue into fall. So the midsummer stuff is still going strong, but then we also get to sort of repeat a lot of what we were doing in the spring with those leafy greens and all those brassicas. But then we also get into the storage crops, things like root vegetables, um, again with the carrots, but also turnips and beets and those types of things, and then the sweet potatoes and even more sweet corn at that point. So 
there can be a lot of overlap with some of these, especially if you're taking advantage of succession planting. So, you know, for example, in the early spring, we've got those leafy greens and we can be doing carrots and um, we can, you know, move into the green beans and such. And we can do several plantings of those throughout that early part of the season. But once we hit the midsummer, it's just too hot around here for any of those to really do very, very well. So we pause on those. And then we can start again in the late summer and into the early fall. So we can grow those leafy greens and those early root vegetables and those green beans on both of the shoulder seasons sort of in succession. And we're harvesting many of those at the same time that we're harvesting other ones that are coming from the other parts of the season. For example, the tomatoes. We're planting those, you know, at the beginning of May, but we're not harvesting them until we start probably around that first week of July is the very earliest that we're getting those outdoor tomatoes. But those tomatoes will continue all the way through until the first frost. We not only make sure that we're planting varieties that are indeterminate that will continue to produce, but we also do determinate varieties that we plant twice so that we're sure that we have a crop that goes all the way through. So even though we're not gonna have tomatoes in the spring when we have those first round of like lettuces and stuff for your salads, in the fall, we will. So we'll get to have tomatoes at the same time we're having lettuce for the salads and stuff like that. And then sweet corn is another one. You know, sweet corn around here can be continually planted from the very early spring, if you've got the right varieties, all the way through to the late summer. And so they're harvested, you know, late spring, early summer, all the way through into the first frost. There's a lot of overlap there. There is such a wide variety in our area for what we can grow. Now, if you're a little bit further north from us in the Northern Hemisphere and you've got a shorter growing season, you might be limited in what you can grow and how long you can grow it, especially if you're not using season extension. So that's gonna be a concern. But if you're further south from me and you have a much longer growing season or you can essentially grow year round, you have a wide range of things to choose from. The problem with this is that a lot of variety can very quickly lead to overwhelm. So pick your favorites for each part of the season, okay? And then we'll look at how to maximize your harvest window a little bit and utilize your garden space most appropriately. So think back to your walkthrough. We talked about this in the first episode of this series, you know, going through and checking out the farmer's markets that you plan to attend. Think back to your walkthrough of that. In, in looking at what was available, were the tomatoes always sold out? So was there room for more tomatoes at that market? Or were there a ton of vendors that all had tomatoes and they weren't selling out? The demand just wasn't there or there was just too much at the market. Um, was there anything missing from tables that customers might be looking for? So if you're really good at growing carrots and you didn't see a whole lot of carrots available in the spring and in the fall, that might be a need that you could fill. Talk to people who are already selling at that market and find out what's most in demand. What can customers not get enough of? And what was there too much of that you really probably shouldn't bring to the market, right? Once you've sort of thought through all of this, let's say that you've chosen, we'll just be arbitrary here, okay? Let's say you pick lettuce and spinach and radishes, and you're gonna do those both in the spring and the fall. 
And then you've picked tomatoes, cucumbers, and zucchini for your sort of heavy hitters for the summer crop, right? That's six different things to grow throughout the season in multiple successions. Maybe these are all things that you enjoy growing and that you've had success with and that you've determined through your little bit of market research are in demand at your farmer's market. Perfect. Let's figure out the volume that you'll need to grow and how to sort of work those extras into your garden plan. Hopefully, as an experienced gardener, and by experienced, I mean you've had one year of gardening experience under, under your belt. That's fine. That's plenty of experience. That's what I started with, right? Um, hopefully, you have a plan of some sort, and you have a way that you normally use to determine how many plants that you'll need for your own personal needs. How do you know how many plants you'll need for a farmer's market? Okay, bad news? You don't, honestly. <laughs> It's, it's a really difficult thing to figure out the first couple of years. Don't sweat it. Unless you're jumping into this as like your sole source of income, you have wiggle room here to learn as you go. But here are some things to think about that might guide you in the right direction, okay? How many plants of those crops did you grow last year and maybe the year before? What was your harvest like? Do you have an idea of the volume that you grew from that number of plants? Okay. Second thing to think about, how big is the market that you plan to attend? My husband attends three smaller markets each week and I attend one large one. So there are larger markets in the area for sure, you know, that would require us to have a much larger volume of product to keep the customer satisfied. We don't attend those markets. So when you visited the market, what was the flow of customers like? And hopefully you did what I suggested and you have gone through and, and seen the market, you know, in multiple times of the year so that you know what the flow is like in the spring and then midsummer and then later in the fall. If you are doing this in the off season and you plan on jumping in in the spring and you haven't had a chance to visit that market, make sure that you are finding either a Facebook group or some sort of online um, chat room or something where the vendors from that market gather that you can talk to them about it, okay? Ask the questions and find out from other people that have been there if you haven't actually gotten a chance to visit yourself, okay? And once you sort of mull these things over a little bit, then decide how much you want to bring of each of your chosen crops to the market each week, okay? This is going to be a little bit of a leap of faith the first year and maybe even the second year, okay? Again, talk to other growers who have a similar size setup to what you're planning. Find out how much they're bringing to market each week and whether they're selling out, and then just make an educated guess on how much you want to bring. The best thing I can think to tell you is to picture in your mind how you want your table set up and how you want it to look. What do you envision filling that table with across all the parts of your selling season? Okay, This is going to give you an idea of how to sort of work backwards to figure out how many plants that you'll need and what type of succession planting you can plan for. I know it sounds a little overwhelming, but just stick with me and we'll, we'll figure it out together, okay? So let's just use a very specific example. So say that you decide in the spring and the fall, then it is reasonable to think that you would sell 10 bags each of lettuce and spinach and 10 bunches of radishes each week. And then in the summer through the fall, you'd like to fill the table with 
50 pounds of tomatoes and 25 pounds each of cucumbers and zucchini, okay? These numbers are not unreasonable for a smaller market if you have several other vendors who are also selling these same items. If, however, you are one of the few vendors bringing spinach in the spring, you may decide that that 10 bags each week won't be nearly enough. And that maybe the demand for radishes isn't as high as you think it is, so maybe you dedicate more space to the spinach and less to the radishes. This is absolutely going to be a learning process your first season. Don't sweat it. Just make an initial decision and then move on from there and plan accordingly, okay? Once you know how much you want to bring to market, you need to figure out how many plants will give you that ideal yield. Now, this is going to take you back to how you plan for your garden for your own needs. How do you determine how many tomato plants that you need for the season personally for your family? Do you base it on the projected yield of each plant? I mean, it's easier to plan for a family of four than it is for a random number of customers that may or may not show up each week. And that's why I say choose a projected number of pounds of each item and then plan from there. Research the varieties that you plan to grow. What does the seed seller say about the yield? Use that as sort of a baseline. If you're growing multiple varieties, how quickly do they mature? Will they yield continuously over an extended period of time, like an indeterminate tomato or loose leaf lettuces? Or will it yield for a very specific amount of time and then be done, like a determinate tomato or a single head of lettuce? This will not only tell you how many plants of each type you'll need, but it's also going to help you develop a timeline, right? And this is where our succession planting and our interplanting comes in. So planting in sequence or planting all at once but using varieties that mature at different dates is just as important, if not more so, for a market garden as it is for your home garden. I mean, think about it. Have you planted successions of radishes in the spring that you'll get weeks and weeks of radishes and then get bored with them after like the first three harvests and now you have enough radishes in the garden to last you another month, but you're totally over it? <laughs> so with a market garden, that's not usually a problem. You may not have the same people shopping your stand week after week, so it'll be a good thing to have a steady supply of radishes on the table. So having those 10 bunches every week for eight weeks in the spring makes it much more likely that you'll sell out of them than if you have 30 bunches on the table, but only for three weeks. So planting in succession allows you to have a more continuous harvest. And remember, we talked last episode that consistency is key. The more consistent your offering is on your table, gradually changing over with the seasons, the more your customers will come to rely on you to have what they want during the season. So let's use our sample crops to create a really quick plan. I'm not gonna dig too deep into this because I could get into a lot of minutia here, but let's just do an overview. So let's start with our spring and fall plantings of lettuce, spinach, and radishes, right? You could do this a number of ways. You can either choose several varieties of each of these that mature several weeks apart and plant them all at once, or stick with one or two favorite varieties and plant them several weeks apart for a continuous harvest. I actually practice both of these methods and it depends on what I'm planting and when. So keep in mind, in the spring, when the weather and the soil is warming up quickly, the growth rate of your plants is also going to increase. 
So if you plant two varieties of spinach at the same time, and one is supposed to mature about four weeks after the other one, their growth rate is going to increase at the same rate as the soil and the weather warm because they were planted at the same time. So that maturity gap should stay about right. But if I plant one variety and I just opt to replant it every two weeks or so, that first batch is going to speed up its growth rate probably around the same time that I'm planting the second batch, right? And then that second batch is going to speed up even more quickly as I'm planting the third because our soil is getting progressively warmer. They're also probably going to germinate faster. So while the first two batches may mature at that two weeks apart, that second and third may only end up being one week apart, which means I may have more than what I need all at once. Plants going in the ground in the late summer for a fall harvest face the opposite issue. Their growth is going to slow as the day length gets shorter and the weather and the soil temperatures cool. So while this may seem like a good argument for just planting everything all at once and just choosing varieties with staggered maturity dates, there are actually plenty of reasons why you might want to only plant one or two varieties and just stagger those planting dates. The first one is disease resistance. If you have very specific diseases for these particular crops and you have found one or two varieties that are really good at resisting that disease, well, then you're likely going to want to stick with those one or two varieties. Um, you may have a preference for their taste or their texture. There are some spinach varieties that I just don't love. Either they get too big or they get too tough, and I prefer them you know, to be smaller or more tender. Um, there are certain tomato varieties that we absolutely love and that I will grow every single year. There's others that I've tried that I refuse to ever grow again. You know, If you have a favorite, you're going to want to stick with those favorites. Their growth habit, you know, there may be some that are super, super consistent for you and others that are hit or miss and you want to stick to the ones that are more predictable. And then the other reason behind this is your workload. You know, it, it's a lot to plant everything all at once. So it might just be easier for you to be able to stagger those plantings. It's a really good idea to keep great notes. I mean, you know, I'm always talking about keeping a garden journal and keeping good notes. But this is even more important if you are doing this in, in an effort to try to make money, right? So keep good notes the first season with your planting dates and the varieties that were planted on those dates, the harvest dates, and then what you get out of that harvest. You will better be able to adjust the next season and the season after that if you think that things are like growing too quickly and they're leaving you with too little to harvest in the beginning and then like too much at the end. If there's too much overlap, if there's not enough overlap, you'll be able to adjust accordingly in the following seasons. The other thing to know is the potential yield of the varieties that you're choosing. So look for those notes from the seed seller or the plant breeder. For those lettuces example, are you planting loose leaf lettuces that can be harvested two or three times before they're tapped out? Or are you planting head lettuces that take longer to mature and they're harvested only once? But then you can like leave the stalk there and leave it in the ground and it will produce a small little crop of loose leaf, right? Is the spinach that you're growing better suited as a baby spinach crop or a full-sized? That's going to affect the volume that you harvest and how much of the spinach fills those bags that you intend to sell. And it's also going to affect how far apart you should plant those seeds. 
which is going to affect the amount of space that you need. So read the description of the variety for it to tell you its approximate yield per square foot or the yield per row foot. And if that specific information isn't available, there are lots of ways to look that up online. Just do a search for average yield per square foot or average yield per row foot of lettuce, and you will turn up a boatload of results. So for example, if you determine that you're going to want 10 eight ounce bags of spinach at the market every week for the first eight weeks that you're there, that's going to be a total of 40 pounds of spinach over those two months. Okay. The average yield per 10 row feet of spinach is five pounds. I mean, it could be as little as four, it could be as high as, you know, eight, but we're just going to say five pounds. That's kind of the average, right? That means for 40 pounds of spinach, you're going to need 80 row feet of garden space. But remember, we don't want it all at once, right? We only want to be harvesting about five pounds per week, give or take, to get to those 10 bags that we want to sell. So assuming that you're going to do sort of a cut and come again method where you get like two harvests from each set of these plants, this means that you're going to need to plant four successive plantings at about 10 days to two weeks apart. You'll harvest the first set and then harvest again while the next batch is maturing and so on. And so your planting date is going to be determined by how long it takes that spinach variety to get to maturity. Some varieties are as short as 40 days, others as long as 60 days. Or you can choose four varieties that mature two weeks apart from each other and just plant them all at once. This means that you will have to have all 80 row feet available at the start. Whereas if you stagger the plantings, you can reuse that first plot a second time for the final planting and use less space. So if space is at a premium, this may be the way that you want to do this. What do I mean? Say that you plant your first 20 feet of spinach on April 1st and the second plot of 20 feet on April 15th and the third plot on May 1st. By the time you need to plant that fourth plot on May 15th, that very first one that you planted way back on April 1st will likely already have been harvested. And you can actually probably wait another week to replant because remember those soil temperatures will have warmed up, which means they're going to germinate faster and they're going to mature faster. So you can get the same 80 row feet of planting space in just 60 feet of space, but planting and harvesting in succession. So the space is also going to help determine whether or not you are doing succession planting or if you are planting multiple varieties that mature successively. There's the difference there, right? Let's use another example from your summer crops, okay? Let's choose the cucumbers. If you want to provide 20 pounds of cucumbers each week at your stand for the whole summer, let's just say that's mid-June through the end of September, so about 15 weeks, that's a total of 300 pounds of cucumbers. Now, if we're talking slicing cucumbers, the average weight of each is about 12 ounces. So maybe we just say it's easier at this point to say that we want to bring 25 cucumbers each week instead of selling it by weight, right? So let's just say 25 cucumbers a week, that's 375 cucumbers for the season. Your first consideration is going to be, how many cucumbers does your favorite variety of cucumber tend to yield each week? On average, most hybrid, full-sized varieties of cucumber will yield about 10 cucumbers per plant. 15 if you're planting like a pickling variety or a harvesting smaller, 
and it may only be seven or eight if you're using an heirloom variety. So let's just go with that hybrid full-size 10 cucumbers per plant, right? In theory, you would need 35 to 40 cucumber plants to get you to that 375 cucumbers per season. But does this mean that you'll get the 25 each week that you want? Or will you have a glut at the beginning and almost nothing toward the end? Well, that depends on consideration number two. In your experience, in your garden, do your cucumber plants tend to keep producing all season long? Or do you find that you need to replace those plants halfway through the season to keep them producing? For me, we end up planting cucumbers at least twice, sometimes three times, depending on the disease pressure and the insect pressure, and then how late into the season we're growing cucumbers. In fact, I just went out today into the greenhouse and harvested cucumbers. So growing for market is definitely different than planning out your average home garden. This is another case where you may have boatloads of cucumbers at the beginning of the season, and then they start to slow down drastically toward the end of the summer, but it's okay because you're kind of sick of them by that point anyway. That doesn't necessarily jive with what you'll see with customers at your market stand, which means your third consideration yet again is garden space. Do you have room to plant? 40 cucumber plants right off the bat and trellis them appropriately to get marketable fruit? Or will you need to plant 20 of them initially and then replace those with fresh plants as their production begins to slow down in order to save space? So what we just talked about between the cucumbers and the spinach, you're gonna to need to do this exercise with each one of the crops that you plan to sell at the market and prioritize your crops according to how much room you have to grow specifically for market versus what you're growing for your own home use. Now, you heard me say marketable fruit a second ago, right? Think about what your harvests have looked like in your garden thus far, okay, across your different seasons. You may be willing to eat the ugly tomatoes by cutting off the bad bits and the cracks and overlooking the bug damage on your leafy greens and just eating them anyway. I mean, I know we do, but will you be able to sell them like that? The answer is likely no, or you'll be selling them for a deep discount. Yes, some customers are happy to purchase the so-called ugly produce so long as they know the growing practices and that it's local and they understand that the quality is likely higher because it was picked recently and it's homegrown, so it doesn't matter if it's ugly. But other customers, not so much. So know your customer base and understand that you can plan for a certain level of harvest, but the quality of what you harvest is really going to determine the end result. You might plant enough spinach to potentially harvest 10 bags a week, but an infestation of Japanese beetles may mean that only half of that is sellable. If it's feasible, you may want to plant about 20% more than you think you'll need, just to be sure that you get enough marketable produce to bring to the table. Now, on the flip side, of course, you may end up with an overabundance, so have a plan for that too, whether it's donation or preserving it yourself or whatever, because anything can happen, right? Above all else, know that what you're planning is the potential harvest. It may be more, it may be less. Your first year is 
absolutely going to be a learning experience. And trust me when I say every year after that is also a learning experience. It's just that the curve just isn't quite as steep. You guys know I've been using Elm Dirt's products in our greenhouse and gardens all summer long with fantastic results. But now I've realized all my houseplants I've neglected all gardening season are in desperate need of being potted up. Just in time, Elm Dirt has announced their newest product, their all-purpose potting mix. This mix is a blend of organic ingredients crafted to create a living potting soil. Not only does it contain their ancient soil, a blend of worm castings along with four of the most bioactive soil enhancing ingredients, it also contains no peat moss. You guys know I'm super concerned about the environmental impact of peat moss and Elm Dirt has chosen to use pit moss for water retention instead. Pit moss is made from organic recycled paper and is a sustainable alternative to peat moss, which makes my little sustainable heart very happy. Elm Dirt is offering Just Grow Something gardening friends a little something special to get you started in using their products. Go to JustGrowSomethingPodcast.com slash dirt and use the code JustGrow at checkout to get a free bottle of their bloom juice with any purchase. That's JustGrowSomethingPodcast.com slash dirt with code JustGrow at checkout for a free bottle of bloom juice with any purchase from Elm Dirt. Okay, finally, let's talk pricing. Okay, there are a number of ways that you can go about figuring out how to price your items for a farmer's market. If you're planning a subscription or a CSA model, we'll talk about that in a second here too. First of all, get an idea of what the local market average is. If you live in an area where tomatoes are really easy to grow and everybody has a backyard garden or at least a few pots of tomatoes on their porch, you may not be able to command as high of a price as you could elsewhere. But if it's not common for people to grow their own spinach and there are very few other vendors selling that, then you can get a higher price for it. The second thing is to check out what a comparable product is selling for at your local grocery. And when I say comparable, you need to know that what you're selling is going to be higher quality, higher in nutritional content, and definitely fresher than what's on the shelves at your grocer. And if you're growing without the use of pesticides or chemical fertilizers, you should be comparing your stuff to the certified organic stuff in the store, regardless of whether you're certified or not, okay? And after all of these considerations, you should be charging more than what the store is charging. Let's be real, okay? The time and the effort that it's going to take for you to be planning, planting, growing, weeding, harvesting, packing, doing all these things by yourself, selling your table full of goods, right? All of the time and effort that you put into that is going to be significantly higher per item than what you see in the store that's been grown on a commercial farm with high dollar equipment, cheap farm labor, and it's only marked up like pennies per pound going from wholesale to resale, okay? You can't compete with those prices and you shouldn't be. It's not that you wanna gouge your customer or make your items inaccessible to the average customer, but you also need to be compensated fairly for your costs and your labor. Which brings me to strategy number three, Know what your time is worth and charge accordingly. 
Yes, we love gardening. Yes, selling at farmer's market is fun. There are boatloads of benefits to sitting in your own community, selling fresh fruits and vegetables directly to your neighbors, chatting with other vendors, and just being involved. And all of those benefits absolutely have merit. But why are you there? Ultimately, more than likely, it's because you want to make some money. Okay, whether you just want to make enough to cover the costs of your own gardening, like essentially feeding your family for free, or if you're trying to make enough to add to a vacation fund or pay for lessons for your kids or pay down a credit card or just to help make ends meet, whatever it is, you want to make money, right? So keep track of your expenses from the seed orders and the plant purchases, whatever you buy in compost and mulch, the cost of building new beds, um, if you're expanding your garden to do this, any additional tools and equipment, all of your setup costs, right? From your canopy to the tables to the signage, all of it. If this is something that you foresee doing a little bit into the future, you can divide those startup costs over the first few years if you want to. But all of the other annual expenses you'll incur, including those plastic bags for the greens, rubber bands for bunching up the radishes, market stall fees, yada, 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 all that stuff needs to be taken into consideration, all right? Then figure out either how much you feel that you need to make per hour for what you're doing, or an overall number of what you feel like you need to net at the end of the season to make doing this worth your while. So again, the first year, it's gonna be an educated guess, but figure out how many hours per week that you'll be working in the garden, specifically on market stuff, plus the harvesting and the packing and the traveling to market, setting up, doing the sales, breaking down. Come up with an educated guess on the number of hours that you think you'll be working specifically on your market garden side hustle, right? And then take that number, assign it a dollar amount if you want an hourly rate. Otherwise, just choose an overall net amount that you want to earn. Now, estimate your harvest. And we've already done that, right? We talked about how many plants and seeds um, you were going to need and how much space you'll need for expanding the garden. And we based that on what you intend to bring to the market. We said 10 bags of spinach, 10 bags of lettuce, and so on. So you've already estimated what you want to bring to the market. Now here's the tricky part. <laughs> add up all of the expenses and then add on the profit or the hourly rate that you want to make over the entire season. Now you have your gross. This is the amount that you need to make in sales at the farmer's market for the year or for your CSA or whatever it is, however it is that you're doing it, right? This is your sales number. You now need to take that number and assign a value to each of the items that you intend to bring to the market. And here is where that research that you did at the market and at the grocery store is going to come in handy. It's not that you're going to try to match what the grocery store is doing, and it's not that you're going to go off of what everybody else is charging. It's that you can use those numbers to understand the sort of hierarchy of value for each of the items that you're growing. So if the tomatoes at your farmer's market are averaging $3 per pound, the cucumbers are selling for a dollar a piece, and spinach is going for $5 for an 8-ounce bag. This gives you an idea of where to start. If you look at your grocery store, they might have tomatoes for $2 a pound, and the cucumbers are only $0.75, cents, and the spinach is $3 a bag. 
And the prices may be different, but you can see where these items are valued by the customer because those prices would be vastly different if the demand were different. There's still a hierarchy there, right? By weight, the spinach is twice as expensive as the tomatoes, and the tomatoes are three times as expensive as the cucumbers. And so, and that seems to be consistent at both the market and the grocery store. So use those numbers as a guide for pricing your goods and start high, okay? Start on the high end. It's much easier to lower your prices later on than it is to raise them if you realize that you haven't priced them high enough. It's also possible that these prices are going to fluctuate across the season. I mean, you know they do in the grocery store, right? But they probably will at the market too. And that's okay. Tomatoes in the early summer when they're way less abundant, I mean, they might start out at $4 a pound because there's a high demand. But by the end of July, when there are tons of tomatoes available, they may drop to $2.50 a pound. And then, you know, bounce back up to $3 a pound by the end of the season or whatever it is. It's okay to change your pricing as you go, even as frequently as every week. If you have a great week of harvesting that spinach and there are twice as many bags as usual, it's okay to drop that price to make sure that you're not going home with any. And if your harvest is consistently lighter than anticipated, it's okay to raise the price to compensate for that lower supply. And also remember that some of these items are much more labor-intensive than the other ones, and some have more loss in the garden than others. So while you may have an abundance of lettuce, there is more effort in harvesting, cleaning, bagging, and then keeping them cold in transport for the lettuce than there is for just picking a bucket full of cucumbers. So price it accordingly. Now, if you plan on selling your produce as a subscription box or a CSA model, you can use all of this pricing information in the exact same way. The difference is whether or not you'll build in a surcharge for the subscription box or build in a return on investment for the CSA. So for a subscription, you may say the box will be $25 a week and they're paying weekly. So when you build that box, if you, in your numbers, have worked a $5 convenience charge into that box, then you can choose to put $20 of retail value into the box. If there's no convenience charge, well, then you put $25 of value into the box. If it's a CSA model where they've prepaid way in advance and they're essentially funding your supply purchases ahead of time, you want to give them something back, right? A return on their investment in you. So you may price those boxes at $25 a week and they've paid for the entire season up front, but you choose to put at least $30 of retail value in the box. And that extra is their bonus for supporting you in the off season. So all the strategies that we just talked about and all the ways of figuring out what the price of things is or should be, you can use those in a subscription or CSA model for determining the value of what it is that's going into that box. There are plenty of ways to go about pricing. If you're really a numbers person, you can track your cost per crop. Um, you can decide what you need each garden bed to earn as a profit and price what comes out of them that way. There are all kinds of different ways to do this. Just choose a direction and just start somewhere the first year and then just be flexible as you go throughout the season. And no matter how you decide to price things, do what's comfortable for you. Should you undervalue your time and the quality of what you're providing just to match the grocery store prices? Absolutely not. But 
should you charge $5 per pound for something just because you can and then feel really lousy about it at the end of the day? No, absolutely not. Find the balance that works for you and whatever your goals are. Remember that you're brand new to this and give yourself some grace. So I hope that you found some value in this episode and the previous one and that I was able to answer at least some of the questions that you may have had about starting a market garden or expanding your existing garden just a bit to be able to sell at a farmer's market. Did these past two episodes make you decide to go for it? Or did you decide it's really not something you want to tackle? Reach out. Let me know. I would love to hear. And if you have any other questions around this topic, I would be super happy to answer those too. Now, coming this Friday, I have another bonus episode for you, and this is an interview that I never thought I would actually air. It's an interview with my husband, Arsenio, a.k.a. The Mean Farmer. It was originally just a test interview way back in January, just so I could kind of practice my processes before bringing on my first guests. But in honor of Veterans Day here in the U.S. on Friday, I thought the interview was poignant. So look for that interview to drop in the special episode on Friday. Until next time, my gardening friends, keep on cultivating that dream garden, and we'll talk again soon. You just finished another episode of the Just Grow Something podcast. For more information about today's topic, head on over to JustGrowSomethingPodcast.com for all the episodes, show notes, blog posts, discount codes, and more. Don't forget to sign up for the newsletter while you're there. You can also head to Facebook and join a community of other gardeners asking questions and sharing their experiences in the Just Grow Something Gardening Friends Facebook group. And if you want to support this show even further, head to patreon.com slash justgrowsomething to find out how. Until next time, my gardening friends, keep learning, keep growing, and we'll talk again soon. Plants going in the ground in the late summer for a fall harvest also basically same the pro blah, 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 blah. so while this might seem a good like a mm, <clears throat> try again but an infestation of japanese beetles may mean that only half of that is saleable saleable sellable mm, we're gonna go with sellable and if your harvest is consistently lighter than expanding your existing garden just a bit to help to be able to, uh, huh, no.